Welcome. This is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 99 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is When to Conduct Enhanced Anti-Corruption Due Diligence. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Before we get started, two points. First, please subscribe to our podcast and give the podcast a five-star rating so that others can find it. Second, the Volkoff Law Group provides ethics and compliance program services, including anti-corruption program design and implementation, risk assessments, uh, compliance program assessments, audits, comprehensive due diligence services, as well for managing third-party risks. If interested in our services in this area, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Well, another in the long line of due diligence, third-party risk management programs, and uh, there's been so much written, so many vendors putting out white papers. Um, I thought we would just take a focused look on just one particular issue, and let me provide a little bit of background. I've spoken on this issue a lot uh, in terms of risk management, but we're going to get into a specific issue here, which is when do you need to go beyond your basic due diligence protocol and look at uh, an enhanced due diligence type of examination and investigation? So just as background, let's set this up. Um, we know about the, how daunting the process can be for managing third-party risks. There's so many outside entities that your company has, for example, that help in providing goods and services that your company needs to thrive from logistics coordination to other types of inputs that are needed. Uh, But completing the process of third-party onboarding and having a risk management program for screening purposes and for risk mitigation requires real careful attention Uh, And government regulators have demonstrated, you know, the DOJ and the SEC, uh, higher expectations for compliance and third-party risk management programs. Now, we already know that most enforcement actions of the FCPA involve uh, third-party conduct, uh, and usually it's a breakdown in the company's uh, internal controls and due diligence processes that permit Uh, an environment where third-party corruption may occur in the first place. Too often, red flags and other corruption risks slip through the cracks and they go unresolved, and there can then be legal, financial, or reputational damage uh, from that third-party conduct and the failure of your uh, controls to sort of mitigate or catch and identify and prevent such conduct. So uh, there are obviously... Lots of risks besides anti-corruption. We're talking nowadays about sanctions, money laundering, and third-party payments, um, that these types of mishaps can also uh, underscore the importance of doing uh, maintaining an effective third-party risk management program. Um, so DOJ has issued guidance outlining the factors that prosecutors consider uh, when reviewing a corporation's third-party risk program, and these factors are a great starting point for managing your company's third-party risk because they demonstrate what the overarching goals of a risk management program should look like. Specifically, 
whether your company takes a risk-based approach to vendor management and procurement, matching its third-party management processes to the nature and level of enterprise risk identified by the company, whether your company identifies red flags related to its third parties and resolves those red flags appropriately, whether your company has an appropriate business rationale for engaging each of its third parties, whether your company has considered its third-party incentives against compliance risks, including compliance programs of their own uh, of the third parties, or obviously contractual obligations uh, that bind the parties in their uh, contract. Uh, whether your company also has ensured that its contracts uh, require uh, the third party to specifically describe the services to be performed and contain appropriate payment terms, and whether your company's third parties actually perform the work. In other words, now we're talking about invoice to payment processes and verifications, and they receive an appropriate compensation for the specific services for which they're seeking payment. Whether your company trains those who manage the relationships, the control persons within your company who manage the relationships with the third parties about the relevant compliance risks and how to manage those risks, and whether your company performs continuous and ongoing monitoring of its third parties. These are basic, uh, great statement of guidelines that comes from the guidance, uh, from DOJ's guidance recently uh, reissued. Um, and so basically, and if you want to boil this down, there's basically three principles that uh, apply to your third parties. First, and it's not an ironic twist to have three for you, third parties, um, you have to understand who your third parties are. In other words, gather information so who your owners are, your qualifications to perform the contracted for work, the business associations, and their marketplace rep, uh, reputations. Second, you also have to understand and document why it, you are engaging with uh, the third party. In other words, uh, what is the business rationale? Um, there must be a specified need, uh, and compliance personnel have to work with business professionals uh, within the company to demonstrate and communicate and document a specific justification and for the business rationale. And finally, the third principle, so we have who, we have why, and the third principle is the commitment to an ongoing compliance um, approach or principles by implementing continuous monitoring of the third-party relationships. Now, this can be updating due diligence, exercising contractual audit rights, providing com updated compliance treatment, or, or requesting annual compliance uh, certifications. Um, so this is another way to sort of uh, get at the, th the, the basic points that DOJ uh, is is getting at. And the heart of vendor risk management is obviously the due diligence onboarding process, which allows your company to identify, stratify, and resolve the enterprise risks posed by the third party. Since much of the process now can and should be automated, regulators' expectations for quality due diligence definitely is on the rise. Increasingly, Regulatory agencies want to know how your company's due diligence processes proceeded, 
including the types of information that was sought and the methods through which red flags were identified uh, and resolved. A mere screening program, while a useful tool, is the baseline minimum for the process and is no longer enough to be wholly defensible. Um, enforcement agencies are clearly expecting a, a more holistic approach. So there are several phases uh, to an effective third-party risk management process. There are four broad phrases, phases, which include information collection first, investigation and analysis second, third, red flag resolution, and fourth, residual risk mitigation. Now, uh, some third parties can be quickly cleared or rejected using open source intelligence as standard screening techniques should capture most surface level concerns. However, there are occasions when deeper dives are warranted before commencing a business engagement. In these scenarios where your company determines that there's a heightened level risk which is involved based upon your unique risk profile and the screening results or even a gut feeling, you know it when you see it, uh, enhanced due diligence procedures have the potential to confirm or uncover elusive data and satisfy sort of business requirements or curiosity or con confirm certain the absence of certain facts which may be um, important, like, for example, uh, the level of government ownership or the whether there is government ownership. Um, so uh, in this area, we look at, and we all know the common list of third-party red flags, but there are third parties, and here's where we start to get into the need for heightened analysis beyond a due diligence, uh, basic questionnaire screening, and basic internet investigation where you need to go uh, into something more. But the basic red flags we look at are obviously third parties with family connections, third parties in high-risk countries, um, a failure of a third party to provide information, um, uh, objections to anti-bribery contractual provisions, uh, prior allegations of involvement uh, in corruption, money laundering, fraud, uh, questionable reputations, uh, unusual payment arrangements, um, the request for political or charitable contributions, uh, shell companies without uh, rationale or adequate staff or facilities, or even use of, uh, I look at P.O. box addresses, and of course any third party recommended by a foreign official, a government official, or a third party that lacks experience or expertise. Um, so some enhanced due diligence procedures are typically reserved for third parties in the highest risk category and are rarely used uh, except only for those third parties that represent your company as an agent or act on your behalf. And that's an important principle because remember a third party uh, does not uh, create FCPA liability unless there's a representational aspect to them, uh, the work that they're going to do for your company, meaning that they represent and can bind the company. So, for example, a vendor that provides Coca-Cola to 30 companies in one particular country and drops off the Coca-Cola is and may pay bribes to get into that country is not necessarily, is not acting on your behalf. 
uh, as opposed to, let's say, a third party that is bringing a specialized shipment of raw material uh, to cross the border for you and only you, then in that case, they are acting on your behalf. And if they did pay bribes to get that shipment in, that would be an issue where you could be, uh, they could be acting in a representational capacity and create an FCPA uh, liability. So enhanced due di diligence reports uh, may include ben more beneficial ownership information, sources of funding, banking relationship information, supplier names and locations as part of the supplier chain or customer names and locations, litigation records, which uh, provide high value to you as uh, in terms of looking at the nature of the issues and what and who are implicated in them. Um, and these enhanced due diligence reports on these issues require more intensive investigation, sometimes what are called boots on the ground, where you have people on, uh, who can interview uh, local people uh, for, to find out more reputational information. There's obviously site visits and uh, some type of cursory interviews, uh, photographs of the location to make sure it exists. Uh, and uh, looking also at who the business partners are and the former associates of uh, the particular candidate third party. Um, a risk-based due diligence process obviously has to reach that point where sometimes an enhanced due diligence is required. These are not going to be, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill types of situations. These are situations where all of the investigation that you've done up to this point is raising still and you in your mind there still are uh, objectively red flags that are not resolved and this is where we need the enhanced due dil diligence there's no definitive list of factors that inherently trigger uh, an enhanced due diligence inquiry um, and the appropriate of due diligence scrutiny varies based on the overall risk indicators that we get in our preliminary analysis. So the degree of due diligence um, really should rise with the level of risk. So if we have a representational situation where somebody's going to represent us, can create liability, and we have red flags that signal a higher risk third party. And uh, the enhanced level of scrutiny will provide a more comprehensive understanding, particularly when uh, I've seen it commonly used when you have complex uh, corporate relationships with third parties, with uh, questions surrounding government ownership or connections with an existing state-owned enterprise, and you're not sure uh, what the exact relationship is with a state-owned enterprise, then that requires further analysis. So some of the warning signs that I look for in this uh, are, number one, what is the industry, the third party's industries, industry? And to me, the more government regulation, the more government uh, ownership in that industry within the, let's say, target country, the more I'm going to want to know to understand that companies, the third parties. Uh, position within that industry within the country. So, for example, pharmaceutical companies uh, are going, or 
pharmaceutical type third party relationships are going to be um, more, higher risk to me if I'm a pharmaceutical company and engaging a distributor or some kind of government agent in, in this process. Uh, the contract nature and complexity certainly uh, is important uh, as well in terms of the type of the work that the third party is going to perform, uh, where the nature of the third party's services interact more with government regulators, uh, particularly as they're my agent, the more that increases, uh, the more interactions they're likely to have with the third go uh, with the government, foreign government regulators, the more that I'm going to want to uh, feel more comfortable with this third party. Obviously, the, the risk of the country and not just uh, the CPI index, the Corruption Perception Index, but also uh, some deeper dives into uh, ind indices that apply to particular industries in that country, and there are those sources that are available as well. Um, we also want to know what the historical relationship that we have with this third party, how did they come to us, why we're dealing with them, um, if there's something that's suspicious that occurred in the past with the third party, this is going to be a way that we want to try to uh, dig into that. The more government interaction levels, which you've seen, and, uh, and the more that I've focused on regulatory interactions, uh, sales interactions, the more opportunities for bribery and other forms of corruption. Uh, now, government ownership and beneficial ownership are really probably the most common area that we run into uh, in terms of unraveling complex ownership schemes, uh, the use of uh, not shell companies by themselves, but the, a, a complex scheme where you may have you know, five to 10 intermediary companies to try to get to the true legal owner. The more, uh, and also the nature of the relationship with a state-owned entity um, and getting accurate information with regard to that usually leads to an EDD or enhanced due diligence of uh, some sort. Now, there's a lot that is written about politically exposed persons and PEPs. Um, to me, that's a, a, an overused term and an overreactive term. The presence of PEPs, which can sometimes be a designation that, let's say, I serve in the government and then 20 years later I'm out on the private sector, I still may have my PEP designation. Um, that does not necessarily mean uh, that I am a risk, a high-risk person. Um, so for that reasons, uh, we look at PEPs, and I take that into account, but I really rarely have ever... Um, had an enhanced uh, due diligence based upon the PEP presence at all. What I am more concerned about are familial relationships with government owners. So, for example, when I see a brother or a relative who is uh, an owner of the company and the company interacts with a government owner uh, who is a relative of that person, then I get more concerned with that. So the PEP designation by itself doesn't get to that issue to me uh, as well. And so I've mentioned uh, unique or inexplicable kind of legal entity forms or structures. Um, this, uh, you know, trusts, for example, are something that look funny. Nominees, 
sometimes, but it depends upon the presence of a nominee, to me, depends upon uh, the local regulation in that country, whether or not a company to have a subsidiary or a third party to have a subsidiary uh, uh, needs to have a local company, and sometimes they hire a, a local nominee type uh, service that can create a subsidiary in that sense. So um, in terms of uh, another risk factor, high risk factor to me in terms of payment arrangements or business arrangements for a third party is the third party's uh, relationship to the banking system. So for example, if I see a third party who has is a, uh, let's say, an Eastern European national and has banking relationships in Panama uh, or uh, Malta or other suspicious type locations, uh, maintaining business arrangements, business forms there, and um, accounts in those places, which may be legitimate accounts, but nonetheless, I'm going to, uh, that's going to be a heightened concern. In the end, in the end, it's, there's no real one rule. There are common scenarios that come up, but it, it really depends upon your risk profile. In other words, your tolerance, your company's tolerance for risk in this area. And in my mind, uh, it, what this means, even getting the enhanced due diligence will get you to the, um, let's say they satisfactorily confirm a lot of facts for you. But the fact that you went through it means that you also have to have a heightened sense of monitoring, follow-up audits, and other procedures because it's going to be a continuous process with this third party. Until you get to the level of comfort after years and years of a relationship, uh, where everything looks fine. But in the end, um, you know, there are other situations that could come up where enhanced due diligence may be warranted, uh, and there's just no precise formula. But I think some of the common scenarios that I've mentioned to you, going upon level of government interaction, ownership structures, payment arrangements where you have suspect nations or suspect uh, locations involved and weird situations in terms of uh, uh, relationships to family members. Uh, these are common scenarios and common situations where uh, third-party uh, enhanced due diligence may be needed. One other cautionary note is remember that government owners um, it can be a government ownership interest as small as 1% that can in an entity that constitutes uh, a bribery payment scheme. What we're seeing more of these days are equity-type arrangements uh, with third parties where government owners are hiding their ownership interest, uh, and it's difficult to get behind those uh, beneficial ownership situations to identify that person, but it's even more critical than ever in those situations where you suspect or have some reason to question the, the ownership of a third party that you dig in and actually have the enhanced due diligence and the documentation to justify moving forward with that uh, person uh, along with all the other standard risk mitigation uh, techniques. So hope, for this, hope this was helpful. I know this is a common subject, but, uh, and I wish I could give more definitive guidance in terms of when you uh, order enhanced due diligence. But look for the, scene, the situations that I just mentioned 
uh, and, uh, and try to apply a sort of consistent approach in terms of looking for the presence of uh, one or more of these factors um, that can justify the enhanced due diligence. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn about our commitment to ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff.volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your